HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Hello and welcome to Snackatunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we have author Andrew Friedman to talk about his new book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and being an impartial chronicler of chefs from the 70s and 80s. And we have Sun Voyager live in studio playing new songs off of their record, Seismic Vibes, who talk about the tribulations of traveling through college towns during the summer. So sit back, relax, and thanks for listening to Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Sun Voyager uh, with their single Caves of Steel. They'll be playing live later on today. It's going to rip. This is easily the biggest drum set we've ever had in the studio, and I will be sitting right next to it. Uh, but for now, our guest of honor, Andrew Friedman, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to meet you. I know. Fellow podcast heritage radio Digital radio network host? All of that. All of that. That's, and that's all that we know about so far. Yes. Uh, I mean, and you also write a blog. Um, you've been prolific. Uh, before we get into your new book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, How Food Lovers, Free Spirits, Misfits, and Wanderers Created a New American Profession, the, the title must be said. Thank you. I want to give a little bit of framing of reference point for people because you've been at this for so long. Mm-hmm. You've, been do- you've been working with chefs since the, the 90s. I've been writing with chefs for just about 20 years, and for just a handful of years before that, I was a, I guess you'd say a restaurant publicist and marketing guy. What was the restaurant publicity game like (laughs) pre-internet? Oh, that's funny. Uh, Well, I never did it post-internet, so it's hard for me to compare. But it is, it was, uh, it was a lot of work, you know, when you wanted to quote-unquote pitch journalists. Uh, you know, you, you, you either faxed a pitch or you mailed a pitch. Uh, very often we would do these, uh, I think it still exists on Word. I'm sure it does. Mail merge. You'd write a pitch and you'd slot in different addresses and addressees and you'd send out like, you know, 30 versions of a, of a form letter customized to the individual people. And same with press releases. And then I'm really dating myself. And then e- I was there, you know, email was great when it came along. But now it's, I mean, the, I mean, I think half of PR these days, you talk to a lot of agencies, and I think half of them, it's become a social media game as much as anything else. I was about to say, it's, you know, yeah. it's, can Eater post about it, and then can you get your newsletter and your Instagram yeah. uh, up and running? Yeah, and I, there's also, sadly, fewer places to pitch stories. Yeah, I, I envision it, you on the phone, you're like, Jimmy, Jane, come eat, we got a new restaurant opening, come on. You owe me one. Uh, there was stuff like that. I don't know if I ever said you owe me one, but it was. <laughs> I got this new chef, blah, blah, blah. I rem- I represented Marcus Samuelson. I was going to say, who- oh, okay. Right when he got the job at Aquavit, he was 24. We're still friendly. But I remember calling people and saying, I have the best black Swedish chef in all of New York City. And they're like, they're like, okay, so you have the only <laughs> black Swedish chef. Uh, but was, yeah. was, was that really the pitch for him? Was that how no, he was? I mean, I mean, once or twice to a good friend of mine. I mean, it was at the time. Now everyone's so used to Marcus. But that was like, Marcus, that was a sh- kind of a stunner that he got the job at Aquavit. Uh, because people didn't, now everyone's so familiar with his story. Well, this is this is an ongoing theme that I think comes up in the book is that you introduce these chefs uh, who are now legends. You know, when Wolfgang shows up or um, when Bobby Flay shows up, yeah. um, they are such legends. But in your book, they're just slotted in as you know the, the CDC or right. the Garmanger. You yeah. know, just they they just show up and yeah. you go, oh, I know where the story is going. Yeah, it's an origin. It's a it's a vast origin story. It's a huge origin story, and I think for anybody who loved Please Kill Me, which is one of Darren and mine's favorite book. Thank you. This this is very reminiscent of it. it it's almost impossible to put this book down. Thank you very much. I uh, mean, there's no the only other comparison that means as much to me is the thing that. I used to be in the film business before I found my way to this stuff. Uh, there was a book called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, mm. which is about the film directors of the 70s. Uh, again, the same time period, different mediums, but uh, that and Please Kill Me were the two books I had you know, in my head when I pitched this book. 
Please Kill Me starts in 1965 with the MC5 in Detroit yep. and really gives a good their the origin story even though they don't really kind of come along to what ends up happening at the meat of it what what is the origin point for your book what is the MC5 version and Ooh. what is the current state of food before this book starts well first of all i should say that you know the best and worst thing that ever happened to me was becoming a big fan of Quentin Tarantino because I do love books that move around in time. So there are people who come and go through this story and kind of in the middle of this story you get a history of the Culinary Institute of America and a history of French cuisine in New York City. That goes back decades earlier than my book starts. I mean really the origin point for my book strangely I would probably say is the Nouvelle Cuisine movement in France. Uh, and how that affected people's ideas about what food could be, uh, you know, breaking away from what I call the Escoffier playbook of classic French cuisine into a more personalized kind of chef-by-chef repertoire. We take that so for granted now. That was a new thing. That was a new thing. And also, that really marked, I mean, the most well-known person of that school was Paul Bocuse, who just died this year, but that very much marked the chefs becoming known, becoming famous. They didn't use the term celebrity chef yet, but both of those things were very, I think, influential to young Americans who were watching it happen, and at the same time being affected by things like the counterculture and the Vietnam War protests and and kind of not wanting to grow up to be their parents, you know, and looking for maybe something a little more personally meaningful to do with their lives. It's interesting. You talk about people going to Key West or going out even further in West Coast outside of yeah. you know, wherever it is. Uh, how did you pick the the places or the, the parts of the country to focus on? Because it wasn't just all of the... It was happening in a lot of places, but how did you focus on these cities? Yeah, so, I mean, the amazing thing about... You asked the internet question a minute ago. It's, it's, it's very hard to convey this to a younger audience how disconnected things were. There was no internet. When my story starts, there's no fax machines. Uh, and How do you get the press releases <laughs> exactly. out? <laughs> and there's no coverage, really, of chefs at that time. You know, the people who were known to, to customers and to the public were the empresarios, the, the front-of-the-house people who usually owned the restaurants. And, um, and what's fascinating is Thomas Keller used the term, I put it in the book, the universal mind. You know, there were these little pockets of activity around the country where young people were deciding to become chefs. Sometimes they were almost in isolation, like a young Norman Van Aken. You mentioned Key West. That was Norman Van Aken. Basically alone in doing what he ended up doing down there. Uh, my book focuses on what I think of as the three main hubs of the time period I cover, which is basically the 70s and 80s. The Bay Area around San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. And I chose those ultimately because, uh, well, two reasons. One is there was a greater sort of hive of activity. There were a lot of people kind of bouncing off each other, moving around job to job at each other's restaurants, kind of affecting each other. There was... um, uh, there was a scene, a definable, different definable scene in each of those places. I think very different, even types of chefs that you found in those three places. And I wanted ultimately very much not to write a reference book. I did not want to write a survey. Um, I actually sent an email uh, a couple of weeks back 
asking for the mailing address of everybody who I had interviewed because I wanted to send everyone a book and my publisher was nice enough to make those available. And in the note, I said, I have to apologize. I was overzealous because I interviewed a lot of people in Boston. You know, I interviewed some people from Chicago. and I interviewed people from places that ultimately I wasn't able to fit in the book without it just seeming to me like a, a narrative roadblock. It was just right. killing my momentum. Right. It was just, it would have been a survey. It, it would have been a survey. Ha- this was happening and, and that yes, was happening and, and, and then this was happening and it was happening over right. here. Like I had an amazing two hour phone interview with Patrick O'Connell at the end of Little Washington and Patrick's barely mentioned in this book and it kills me. It kills me. But I wanted this book to be readable, readable from front to end. It's, it's, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying this because you're sitting here. It is a true page turner. Thank you very much. I, I think that it, it is woven together really well. And how did you get the interv- How did you get the interviews? Is it because of you have your history or who was and also who was the hardest to sit down to? Because you do actually break the fourth wall a couple times in I the do. book yeah. to talk about how difficult or how hard or how gracious someone was or how open someone was in the book. Yeah, well, part of the reason I did that, to be honest, is, you know, you talk to people. I'll give you an example. Michael's Santa Monica, which is the restaurant, the four guys on the cover of the book, that's the opening team from Michael's Santa Monica, which is a restaurant that I think from having eaten there when it was almost empty a few years ago, had to have been on its last legs. And then Michael McCarty, not that long ago, brought in this young cook, Miles Thompson, who's up for a Beard Award this year. That restaurant's hot again, 40 years later. They just did a, we do Chef Music Monday, which yeah. is a weekly yeah. playlist. And Michael's did one for us last year. It's amazing. It was great. I ate there a year great. ago, maybe last week. It was right after the Oscars a couple years ago, last last year. And it was packed. It was like red hot. It was amazing. I think I think L.A. more than any city can can refine itself. Yeah. Uh, if you bring in new talent or things like that, I think that they have ability to regenerate. I think New Yorkers are a little bit, eh, that, you know, yeah. that, that had its moment. Let's get yeah. something new in there. I, I think LA is a little bit more loyal. Maybe in that so, way. maybe so. But anyway, to answer your question, um, uh, in terms of, uh, I lost my train of thought for a second, but the, the most difficult interviews, well, the, the most difficult were the ones I couldn't get. Right. So, so Mark Miller, who was kind of known as the father of southwestern cuisine? He did a he did these two posters in the '80s that are still you'll see them in the kitchens now and then these chili posters these posters of all these different chilies against the black background mm-hmm. that was Mark Miller that was mm-hmm. connected to a ten speed book he did I could not get Mark to give me an on the record interview although we did speak a little bit but he didn't want to be interviewed officially I was unable to get Ann Rosenzweig who was one of the um, very few women chefs in New York City during the time of my book. I don't know why. I, I had reached out to her myself, and I had mutual... We don't know each other, but I couldn't get her. In terms of uh, people who I did get, probably I'd have to say the hardest was Wolfgang Puck, only because he's surrounded by such a corporate moat <laughs> that even though we have some people in common, I was unable to penetrate all that, and I finally... Uh, I kind of make this arch nod to it in the acknowledgments. I don't say the name, but I called Jonathan Waxman out of desperation, and Jonathan called Wolfgang for me, and that's how I got Wolfgang, who ended up being, an. I have to say, for somebody that well-known, an amazingly open subject. He spent Mm -hmm. about three hours with me. He let me ask him everything about his breakup with his original business partner and and, uh, stuff about his now ex-wife, Barbara Lazaroff, who designed the original Spago, he was amazing. He was he was everything that he's advertised to be. Was there anyone who 
spoke with you and then afterwards called because they were nervous that they were too open or that they would be misrepresented? Or do you feel that everyone was pretty satisfied with how they felt that they had portrayed themselves? That's such a great question. Uh, there was one person. I can't name names on these. That's totally fine. There was one person. No one actually ever wants names, really. They just want to hear the story yeah, and so, then they'll just guess. I like that. Uh, so there was one person who... Wolfgang hates this impression of him out there. There's a lot. Of, if you talk to people who are around in the 70s in L.A., they'll say to you that Wolfgang wouldn't be Wolfgang if it wasn't for Barbara Lazaroff, who was his, his now ex-wife, still a part of Spago. She still spends time there. Um, you know, there's different people on different parts of the spectrum in terms of her influence. I think everybody would say she accelerated the process. Um, but... Um, <laughs> um, the um, somebody called me who had made that co- comment to me along those lines, uh, or sent me an email and said it was almost like a lawyer had written it and said, you know, uh, please don't use the part of our interview where I said that uh, Wolfgang wouldn't be Wolfgang without Barbara. And it was so funny to me because probably thirty people had said that to me of all the things, you know. Right. I will say that in the um, couple of weeks maybe before the book came out when it was too late to have done anything not that I would have these were all on the record interviews um, there were two people who did reach out to me and ask me what in some vague way what they had said to me and they were clearly concerned about whatever you want to call it the reckoning the me too moment yeah. of they were clearly concerned that they had said something that maybe they shouldn't have. Well, one of the things in the book is Batali is pretty prominent in the beginning and then also towards the end. Yeah. Um, Although the book happens before he's... Of course. Yeah, before he's a famous person. But it is... is, I think that you had... I'd read an interview with you where you said, you know, it was too late to take it out, but it's also... It's part of the history. So it's, you know, presenting it in a way where it's like he was there, these things were happening, but a lot of the stuff that he went through was also happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing with Mario is, um, who I've known for a long time, I don't know him especially well. He's always been very nice to me. Um, uh, We have a lot of very close mutual friends. Um, But, you know, this book ends when he's just being discovered. Mm -hmm. Um, So even this behavior that he sort of has vaguely acknowledged, I don't know that it goes back to there. Um, Generally, it comes with the power. That's that's my assumption. Um, you know, there was a Times piece. Uh, week, this was it. Just this week, it's been a long week. Kim Severson wrote a piece in the Times, and somebody who was interviewed—I can't remember who offhand—made some comment about him uh, getting in touch or dealing with his relationship to alcohol. Now, that's something I've wondered about, but I don't have any personal knowledge of. Uh, the thing—not to make this about this topic, but. You know, I, I know him well enough to know that he's a brilliant person, and I was never, when these stories came out, just for self-preservation alone, I could never really square the behavior with the level of intelligence. And, you know, I did wonder if maybe there was something like that also at play. Not that it would excuse anything, but anyway. We're going to take a quick musical break. Okay. We're going to play a song from our archives. Uh, if you want to hear more from Wolfgang Puck, you can go into our archives and listen to Darren's interview with him. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the podcast. Leave us five stars, maybe a comment. We're trying to catch up to Terry Gross. I think she's got 7,000. We've got 37. I think we're going to get there. We're going to take a quick musical break, and then we'll be back with Andrew Friedman here on Snacky Tunes.
one of the things you mentioned is how spread out and how isolated the chefs are. But in the book, which I think is one of the best parts of it, is the first gathering of all these chefs. Mm. This huge dinner yeah. that comes together. Yeah. And, I, and I had never heard of it, which made me feel foolish. But then I was excited I'd never heard about it because it comes up in the book in this grand way. Can you talk about this dinner and, yeah. and how it, it came? It was at Stanford Court. Yeah, so the Stamford Court Hotel, which was at, it still is at the top of Knob Hill for people who know uh, San Francisco. I always think of the movie Inception and the way uh, the city kind of folds in on itself in those dream sequences. <laughs> That's what I think of when I think of Knob Hill. It's so steep. But in the uh, early 80s, uh, Michael McCarty, again, who was a part of what was then a new, relatively new organization called the AIWF or the American Institute of Wine and Food, had this idea to throw a dinner, and there's probably three dinners happening like this somewhere tonight, right, and, and every night. It's so ubiquitous. Yeah, but this was the first one. And this was a, he wanted to put on a collaborative dinner where each of about eight chefs would do a course, and it was to show what was happening in American food around the country. Michael was one of the very few people in this story. His chef at the time, Jonathan Waxman, was another one who were pretty well-traveled around the U.S., who kind of had a sense of what was going on around the country. So Michael spent a year putting this dinner together. He would, I liken it to a heist uh, movie uh, in the book. He, he would go from L.A., where he was based, up to San Francisco once a month, and they would work on the logistics and the planning. They shot little videos of each of the chefs uh, participating in the dinner in their, in their home area, and those were shown in the dining room before each course, and the chefs at this dinner, now here's the important thing to understand. Most of these people, for people who know these names, had been operating for years at this point. The dinner took place in 1983, right around the time of James Beard's birthday. And most of these people had never met, and some of them had never heard of each other. That's how little chefs figured into the national conversation. But the, the participants in that dinner were Jonathan Waxman, Alice Waters, Jeremiah Tower, Mark Miller, who we were talking about a minute ago. Um, uh, Wolfgang Puck did pizzas. He wasn't there. Pizza, that's a whole other story for the after party. Um, uh, Larry Forgione, who at the time had just opened his own restaurant, American Place, a big restaurant on the, in New York City. Paul Prudhomme from New Orleans. And what's really funny is uh, that was the original list that Jonathan had helped put together. And somebody said... There's no representation from the middle of the country. Now, a lot of listeners won't know these names, but it was suggested that he get Brad Ogden and Jimmy Schmidt, who at the time were very well known in the Midwest. And Jonathan's response was, Who's, who the hell is Brad Ogden? He literally had not heard of this guy. And this was a guy who in his own locality was already pretty famous, was doing television. And these people came together. They did a dinner for about 500 guests. And a lot, of, again, a lot of them were meeting for the first time not the Californians, but you know, in terms of the cross-pollination. And it was a moment that was seminal because, first of all, the expectation, including that by the press, Ruth Reichel covered that event, and she said to me, and this is in the book, the pitch was, this is going to be a disaster. You, know, you put a, can't put a bunch of chefs in a room. They're not going to get along. And what happened was they, not only did they get along, they all realized that they were part of a larger movement. And about half the people at that dinner already had their own restaurants. The ones who didn't came away from that event thinking, you know what, it's time for me to strike out on my own. Again, this was a time when the, the people who were most well-known were the front-of-house people, the owners. 
It's a really interesting theme yeah. that is woven throughout the book where people step out from the kitchen and become own, chef owners in their own right, which we think of now as, of course, you're a chef owner. That's, yeah, people so want common. that by the time they're 30 it, now. Uh, 30, 25, <laughs> well, 22, yeah. 19. Right. Yeah. But at the time of the beginning of the book, it's all just they're in the back of the house. Yeah, they're, they're hired the, guns. They're the, the talent. Yeah. And, that, and the other point that I think that is so well woven throughout the book is Ruth Reichel and all of her uh, colleagues who are writing about the emerging food scene and the type of review you're going to get in New Yorker versus the, the New York Times versus all that. How did they, how did being media people, when you were interviewing them, yeah. how did they set themselves up to be the innovators or the pioneers that they want to be seen as versus the reality of how you know, their story, they covered the, the stories. The, you mean the writers? The writers themselves. Well, you know, the, the whole thing to me that's so fascinating, and I've, I've had, um, I just wrote a piece about Ruth, um, and who I don't, I don't, I'm getting to know now, because she, she's been very kind about the book, uh, but I don't, I hadn't known that well. You know, speaking to her, speaking to Coleman Andrews, who was her editor at New West, and they both at one point or another wrote for the LA Times, and Coleman created Savoir Magazine, you know, I, I very quickly started to develop this realization that there was no barrier between them and the chefs they covered, you know? And I've, I've kind of decided that one of the real demarcations of any sort of medium or pursuit changing is when people start to have handlers, you know? So when the story starts... They, as Ruth said to me, we were all just part of this food thing. In our own way, we were all trying to do our part to kind of spread the word about American food. So I think it was not terribly um, premeditated by any of these people. You know, Larry Forgione, who again had American Place, you know, massive influence on the whole sourcing network that was created on the East Coast. And, you know, Larry very honestly said to me, I wasn't trying to change the world. I was just trying to get stuff for me because I wanted it for my menu. And I think Ruth, uh, Ruth to me, I really came to think is, you know, the kind of pieces we all as writers do now and take for granted, the kind of stuff that somebody like Jeff Gordoner does in Esquire, these kind of profiles of chefs that have become so normal. Ruth kind of created that around chefs. That was a new thing. And she did a lot of it. The picture I had in my head is she and Mimi and all of them are yeah. in the kitchen having a glass of wine and just peeking over everyone's shoulder, just like just in the in the mix, totally part of it and woven into the story. And given the access, like you said, that you would never have to it would it would everyone be media trained, they would not come in for three months, there would be all this negotiation, and it just seemed that they were just in there as as much a part of it as the chefs were. Yes. To the whole experience. Totally true. You know, Ruth spent, uh, she wrote a, an amazing piece about, I had to go to the library to get the thing, to get the whole piece. I had to actually go pull it off microfilm. But, you know, for New West Magazine, which was the West Coast cousin of, of uh, New York Magazine back in the day, it doesn't exist anymore. She spent a year writing a piece on the opening of Michael Santa Monica. She was there all the time. She, she very honestly said to me that they, you know, sometimes I think forgot she was reporting on them or forgot she, there was a writer in the room. Um, but a year, she got paid $500 for that piece, spent a year on it. She said at one point, this is, I found this out after I finished the book, um, but she told me this story that Michael kind of turned to her one day and kind of punched her in the arm gently and said, uh, hey, can you loan me 500 bucks when he was trying to finish his financing run? Um yeah, it was, it was, it, they, that very much was it, you know? And I think um, she did very honestly say to me, again, after the book was written, 
that she was aware of that dynamic and she did know that it served her well. And I think that's fine. Um, and, but, you know, that she wrote a piece. I know chefs who read this piece like 30 times back in the day where she trailed Wolfgang Puck for a week. Okay, went to a benefit that he's, I think he may even still do it for the Cleveland Clinic and traveled with him. And late in the story, there's a moment where uh, they're on an airplane and Wolfgang wakes up and he had just had a nightmare that he had messed up, I think maybe a dinner for Mike Ovitz, who used to be the head of CAA or something. And she made the comment to me, you know, you're not going to have moments like that if there's a publicist trailing after you. And I asked her how she set up the piece and she said, I called Wolfgang and said, I want to go. On the road, now I have it pretty good with chefs, um, I, but I mean, the kind of access that, that she had and the kind of pieces you can get out of that, it's just extraordinary. The other hero in the book that I want to make sure you touch on uh, are the Quilted Giraffe and the almost dining room to restaurant tours mm. that you talk about. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, five couples, and we uh-huh. won't get into all of them. Uh, essentially people who threw dinner parties at that time thought, hey, I'm going to open up a restaurant. I thought the quilted giraffe was probably one of the best examples of something that was someone's passion, someone's yeah. innovation, and then they took it out of the thing, had no tr- official training or, yeah. no, or no background, and then made something wildly successful. Yeah. Do you think that that environment still exists today where someone can do loft dinner parties and then now I'm going to open a restaurant? Or do you think the landscape has totally changed? I, I, think, it's, I think the idea of that is laughable today. I, I, I do wonder, you know, I think about the food back then. And I don't. I want to very carefully say I'm not talking about specifically the quilted giraffe and berry wine, you know. But I do wonder sometimes, you know, how good was some of the, you know, was it as accomplished? And you know, you look at the the level of of technique that we see all over the place. You and I are sitting here at Roberta's, right? There's a two star Michelin restaurant out back here. I mean, there's so many well trained cooks today. Back then, when it was like you were scrounging for a decent cook. You know, I, I've often wondered about, about that piece of it. The amazing thing to me about the quilted giraffe, and as you say, there were these five couples, almost all of them Jewish in New York City. None of them formally trained. or One of them was a uh, culinary school dropout. Loose. It was loose at best. Yes, at best. I mean, David Waltuck started at the CIA and dropped out and opened Chanterelle, which became another four-star restaurant, as was the quilted giraffe. What was fascinating to me about those five couples is they were mostly of a middle-class or upper-middle-class upper background. They were what we would now call career changers. And I mentioned a few minutes ago this, this difference in chef type in the different hubs of the book. I think a lot of the people in New York City were these young tri-state area kids who were from blue-collar or agricultural backgrounds. I call them the accidental chefs. They were people who got a dishwashing job in high school, weren't very good students, wanted to become kind of experts in French cuisine, wanted to work for French people, wanted to just hone their skill set, Right. Then you had these five couples who were actually very well-traveled, mostly, who, who knew the dining room. It's amazing how many people uh, of that first group I mentioned never ate in those fancy restaurants. They came to it from, from really from the back of the house, you know, forward. Um, so the, those five couples, you know, Susan Wine, who was Barry's ex-wife and his business partner in the Quilted Giraffe, said our leg up on the competition was that we were diners before we became restaurateurs. We ate in the great Nouvelle Cuisine restaurants. So we had the whole experience in mind when we went about doing what we did, you know. And I think that was very important for that, that, that subset of New Yorkers. 
Andrew, I want to thank you for coming on Snacky Tunes. Thanks so much for having I me. I feel like I could talk an hours and hours <laughs> and hours. Or maybe just have you read the book to me and, I, and then have live That's footnotes. Very flattering. Have live footnotes. And just be like, tell me more about this. Yeah. Totally off the record. <laughs> uh, where can people pre-order the book? Um, and how can they follow your million other Oh, you're the best projects? for me. Well, first of all, if you don't mind me, I didn't ask you before the show. Just quickly, you mentioned the Stanford Court Dinner. and We haven't even announced it yet. But on April 23rd, Dan Kluger, the chef of Loring Place, is doing a tribute to that dinner where at Loring Place uh, people and I'll this will segue into my where you can follow me but there's only about four, it's going to be in the private dining room there's about 40 seats and he's doing a tribute dinner where he's going to do his interpretation of each chef's course from the original dinner and Michael McCarty is going to be in attendance and say a few words we're actually going to cut this out of the podcast till I can buy my ticket and then <laughs> we'll air it <laughs> anyway people can follow me I have a bl- I have a blog called Tokeland T O Q U E L A N D and I'm on all the social media channels, but the best place these days, I think, is Instagram. Uh, Tokeland Andrew is my personal feed. At Chef Podcast is my heritage radio program feed. And I just started a gallery of images of the 70s and 80s. It's at deglazed and confused, which corresponds to Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. It is a nothing that you won't see event notices there. I'm very pure it is just chefs and musicians and movie posters of the 60s 70s and 80s perfect well thank you for coming on thanks for having me we're gonna play another song from our archives and then we'll be back with sun voyager live in studio here on snacky tunes Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. 
From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Welcome back. Sun Voyager. Hey, boys. How's it going? Hello. Uh, Good. There we go. Turned it off. I mean, it's a little vibey. Yeah. It's like a Sunday (laughs) afternoon vibe. I kind of like it. It would probably be annoying after a while, but for now, it kind of... Kind of works. Yeah. Lifelong I'll keep it off. I'll keep it off for now. Okay. Lifelong friends? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. How did you all meet? And where are you, And you're from Orange County, New York, which I had never heard of until I heard about you guys. Ooh. It's not bad. Uh, well, no, I mean, just there's another Orange County. It's, uh, it's like there's a few cities that have like similar names in different states, and then there's the famous one, and then there's the other ones. It's like Orange County, New York. Yeah. Yeah. They're, and it, I feel like it. it's still doesn't mean much to people when you tell them. They're like, oh, I've heard of that, but only in California. I don't right. know what that means in New York. What, is, what does Orange Ar- County, New York mean? Well, so- Orange County Choppers is out of Orange County, New York, not Orange County, California, if you can believe that. You remember um, those guys. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but Orange County, New York, it's, it's just like bottom of the state, uh, hour north of the city, beautiful scenery, uh, you know, in, along the Appalachians and... Um, you know, I don't know. We 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 like we like being from there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more commonly referred to as the Hudson Valley. So we're like the lower Hudson Valley, the low Hudson, the low Hudson, or yeah. the Orange County low Hudson. Sure. How did you all? How did you all meet? How, when did you start becoming lifelong friends? Uh, so we all went to high school, high school together. Um, we were in a band. Um, the very end of high school, you know, we were always playing music, just different projects, um, throughout the years in high school. And then in college, we all went our different ways, rejoined certain points, you know, through our college years and Kyle's falling asleep as I'm giving this story. (laughs) You probably heard it. Like I lived it. I've heard it. It's fine. 
But when you reformed, you started practicing in the back of a taco shop. Yeah, so that's my um, parents' restaurant. And, you know, I was going to school. What, what's the co- name of the restaurant? Cafe Fiesta. Got a Dollar Tacos on a Monday? On Monday, yeah. Monday Dollar Tacos. Yeah. Great. So, so, so I'm, I'm going to jump in the car with you, sleep over, and we'll do Dollar Taco Mondays tomorrow. Yes, I've had a couple thousand uh, Dollar <laughs> Tacos, so... That's where yeah. all my money goes, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, even, I, you know, we're, we're part of the, the King Pizza label, and I always encourage bands when they're touring north out of the city, I always want them to come by and just kind of hang out and eat. It's a nice little stop off when you're on the road. Where is the setup for rehearsal or practice, or how did you convince them to let you use it for rehearsal and practice? My parents have always been cool about that stuff growing up, so... We have a kind of a back room with tables, so we just push the tables up against the wall, lock the door up front, and we just play. You know, we've had complaints once in a while over the years. Um, I remember one time we were loading out the side of the restaurant, all the equipment, and a cop came by, and he thought the place was getting robbed because <laughs> there's all these dudes in midnight. You know, we have to practice up to be closed, so weekdays, 10, 11, we can start practicing, and then it's 1 in the morning, and we're carrying out all this equipment. Where a cop coming by, throwing the lights, he's like, busted, guys. <laughs> we're like, joke's on you, we're a band. Yeah. He's like, you're still busted. Yeah, then he, then he found everyone's weed and we all played the joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you ever, speaking of that, would you ever turn on the griddle or anything and cook for yourself? Or it's like, I'm going to go back, take a break, make some food, come back, keep rehearsing? Uh, we, we, we snack. Yeah, we, we, we snack. We've uh, cracked into the uh, to the beer case a couple times too. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, Dad. So, sorry, yeah, Mom. I, yeah. yeah. It's it's they can't a... they can't hurt you here. It, <laughs> you're totally safe on snacky tunes. I have a couple uh, frozen margaritas, maybe. Yeah, yeah a couple <laughs> beer, frozen margaritas. margaritas. Yeah. Just like turn margarita. on the machine, and when everything's cold, that's when you know how to break. It's like okay, it's margarita time. <laughs> Can we hear a song? Yeah. yeah. What are you gonna play for us first? Uh, a uh, song Trip. called Trip. It's uh, we we released this a little while ago. Uh, and it'll be on our new uh, our new album coming out on uh, 420. Great. Sure, right around the corner. Here we go, Sun Voyager live on Snacky Tunes.
mentioned about having bands come up and stopping by the taco shop. What is the music scene in Orange County, and what are the venues that you have played in as as a band? I mean, it's it's you know it's the suburbs. It's up in the sticks, so there's there's not too much, but you know there's always bars, uh, you know, a cafe or two, a bar. As far as towns go, uh, a lot of the towns along the river um, have like the bigger cities where you see. As you're going up the New York State Thruway towards Albany, every exit has uh, uh, a couple bars, a couple venues, um, Beacon, Newburgh, New Paltz. What are some of the venues? What like what's the if I'm a band from there? Like what route am I playing? What are the venues and what are the cities? Um, it's it's funny. It's it's a lot of uh, I mean Snug Harbor in New Paltz is a is a nice venue, and there are a bunch of like ran- basements with random names in New Paltz. Um, Queens and Beacon. Um, the yeah, there's a lot of a lot of colleges up there, and you can always rely on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in uh, in Newburgh, city of Newburgh is the warehouse. Um, the anchor in Kingston. Um, Half Moon in Hudson. It's one of our very early on, almost four or five years ago. Uh, we used to play there a lot. The Half Moon. Uh, it's right below Albany. Yeah, and, and once you get into Albany, there's a good, I mean, you got a bunch of schools up there, so it, it, it keeps the scene alive. And and is it, do you find that's pretty supportive? Is it small? Is it big? Does it change with the college season? Or, or do you find a lot of other bands or meet a lot of other bands that way? Or do you find a lot of it's fed from New York and, and it kind of diminishes as, as you move further up? I mean, there are definitely a lot of bands that are that are doing it in the Hudson Valley. Um, uh Geezer and It's Not Night at Space are two bands that we play with a lot up there. And there, there are a lot of younger bands that are doing stuff at, like, VFWs and stuff. Um, you know, Legion, you, Legion Halls? Yeah, yeah. Really? You, you'll, you'll, find, you'll find great shows at Legion Halls upstate. And uh, that's, that's pretty much where a lot of the scene lives because, you know, it's a lot of kids in high school and, co- and college that aren't 21 yet. Right, so. and they can get the room and, yeah. and program it. Yeah, we we've done it ourselves before. <laughs> yeah, and, and and as a tip too for bands that are touring, if you're going to go to college towns, make sure school's in, because uh, the worst <laughs> thing is rolling into a city. Yeah, you in hit real, it on spring break, and it's yeah, we've hit it on spring break. We've hit it in the not summer. Not like MTV spring break. It's yeah, <laughs> you roll into the town, you're like, oh, there's no kids here, and that's because they're not in school. And Especially who who booked the sh- who booked the show? Was someone like, come on up, we'll get something together for you. Or did you just decide to play a bar or a VFW hall, or, or how did it? How did that happen? Uh, probably yeah. a promoter. I mean, they. You know, it's probably get, on us. Yeah, it's <laughs> probably, <laughs> more, more, more than likely, it was our fault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, you know, it's it's nice to drive upstate New York in the summer, right, and hit all these nice towns, um, but unfortunately, folks aren't really around. You know, and, well, and, and in the summer, you do get some of the festivals. We were lucky enough to do uh, Melt Asia last year. That uh, that Savage Beast, uh, Andy mm-hmm. Animal, his uh, yeah. his festival there. Yeah, it's there's yeah up up by uh, Catskill, New York. Um, these these guys actually lived up there for a little while. Um, up in yeah, Kasaki, nice. is that how you, is that the pronunciation? Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. It's off it's off the thruway. Um, but the same day we played, Rocky Erickson headlined that night, which was real cool just to see him and uh, a giant dog. From Texas, yeah. played before him. It was, yeah, it, was, it was the best. Their killer, killer band. It was a good time. Can Every, we hear another everybody song? Everybody was loaded. <laughs> I bet. Can we hear another song? I think we're out of songs. Mm. Yeah, we only mm. have one song. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, our album is that song. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Just yeah. nine times. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. We're not too exactly. big on the uh, in the in the talent department. 
We got some. Okay. Yeah, let's. Uh, we're gonna do psychic lords, I think. Yep. I'm gonna push the button. Push the pedals. Yeah, it'll to my be. Hands. Uh, this one's be on the record as well. I think it's the closer on the record, right? Nah. It's not the closer on the record. It's not the closer. God is dead. Is the closer. Let's get this guy a drink. All right. Someone <laughs> give me another drink. <laughs> First LP is coming out on 420. You've put out a bunch of EPs before. What was it that made you feel that you were ready to do an LP and stitch together something a lot longer? 
Well, I we thought about it for a while, and I guess at other times we just didn't have enough songs or kind of felt forced. But uh, some of these songs we wrote, we wrote like maybe even like two or three years ago, and we kind of held on to them. Uh, we recorded one of them, and then the other ones we just kind of sat down and hammered out. Yeah, we went into the studio with a lot of ideas. Um, some not completely done, or uh, there were a, a few that didn't make it. Uh, and when we knew that we had enough songs to do an album, we just knew that we had to do it. Yeah, and I, th- I think when you listen to each EP we've put out since 2013, uh, the sound kind of changes, it evolves a little bit, moving in a different direction, and then I think we all just naturally felt, okay, we're at a point where we have a sound that we we feel like we got somewhere. So let's yeah. And we were writing a lot of songs as a four piece uh, back in the day, and um, I mean, even we we'd play songs as a three piece, and then another guy would come in and and play guitar. This one was really the three of us, and we wrote a lot of a lot of pretty pretty. Uh, uh, I mean, the sounds are very different. And we had uh, we had our boy uh, Evan come in uh yeah we had a friend come in and play some keys and, yeah uh, he shreds but for the most part it was just uh you know song and, uh, after song and uh, after i gotta song. shout out paul ritchie uh the guy that recorded it uh, sir paul ritchie yeah, sir, sir paul ritchie, ritchie. Yeah. A, a proper sir yeah, he sir. was mm-hmm. not yeah uh he was knighted he was knighted in new jersey so it's not as <laughs> it doesn't hold as much weight but, i think uh, he's uh, got a couple asbury it's, music awards it's to his it's name. london new york yeah is where he was knighted. Yeah, yeah. yes like yes is there a london new york no, of course there it's is. It's on Long Island. Yeah, it's all Long Island. Uh, to, to go back to your point about having a sound that evolves, do you feel that the EPs, the sound that you're at, could be captured on an EP, but the LP was needed to demonstrate how the depth of it and how much it's changed and really be able to have that much time to explore how your sound has evolved to at where you're currently at? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the thing about this record, it's, it's not so much like a one-note record. There's a lot of records... You listen to, and it could be just one very long song. You know, there's a sound, and they drive that sound. When I say we have a sound, it's more of a vibe. A lot of these songs are, you know, some are much more mellow. Others are a lot more aggressive. But it's still the thing we were kind of seeking the whole time. You know, it's a, a lot of these songs kind of um, flow at a different pace very nicely. It's not just one sense of a song and it's you know eight times you know i think each song is unique but really fits our sound i think and how do you feel that you evolved to this place from your previous eps and how you got to a place where it is a a deeper level and it is not just one note did you push each other was in the writing process how did you get to this point yeah i I think that we we started to uh just just really feel motivated by um, inactivity at one point, you know, it, it had been a while since we had recorded and, um, we wanted to get back into the studio. We wanted to really, um, push ourselves and, um, you know, so we, we would get together and just really jam. Um, we'd all come to the table with ideas and I think that the motivation really just, just carried us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and the, the folks that we're surrounded by down here, you know, the, the King pizza crew, uh, there's always some band in the studio putting things out on tour. Um, so having that, uh, competitiveness with your friends, I think, uh, helps, helps get things done. And, um, you know, Greg Hansen, 
has has been you know the main person behind us since the beginning uh supporting everything we've done so having someone behind us um certainly helps too you don't feel like you're out there doing it alone greg has been just tremendous godsend for us you have a record release coming up at babies we do who else is on the bill our friend Stydide, who rip it'll be uh just like a is that a capital r rip like a proper yes. ripage. Yeah, they're yes. killers. Okay. Yes. Yeah, they we just. Kill <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they're violent, uh, yeah. violent guys. But uh, we we just played uh, some gigs with them on our way down to South by Southwest. We were just there a few weeks ago. Stydid was on the road as well. We met with them in Dallas. Played some pre-South by. Got violently drunk yeah, with them. Yeah, uh, I have very, very hospitable place, uh, Texas, despite what. To it is, uh, or, uh, or to get violently drunk, or just yeah. Yeah. hospitable. Oh. All of the above, yeah. definitely. Yeah, the beer flows like. Uh, flows like I think those guys are always pushing us to get more, more drunk. More drunk, yeah. right? I mean, Luis specifically uh, is is a guy who is always pushing you to get more drunk, and um, I, I have to thank him. I have to thank him for that. So mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy was putting back maybe you know six or eight beers before noon. You know what I mean? Like sounds like a years. sounds like a proper South by Southwest. Yeah, it's like you know, it's like I don't normally have ten whiskeys before yeah. I have breakfast, but why not? Yeah. But what if I did? You yeah. don't play a show without it. Without Readjusting yeah, yeah. on that Monday. Yeah, adjusting you know, the sim life. Yeah. Yes, I, I I have come off many a South by going. Oh, this is why this is not forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. But uh, where can people pre-order the record? Buy the record. Uh, Seismic Vibes is out on April 20th on King Pizza Records, which is going to be so rad. Yeah, uh, you can you can pre-order it on King Pizza, uh, KingPizzaRecords.com. There's a store link, and um, we're we're going to be up all over the place wherever you can download music. We're on Bandcamp. Um, Love Bandcamp. Yeah, yeah, they're the you best. Can, you can buy the record on Bandcamp too. Um, help help the help the cause. Help the King Pizza cause. Help the help Sunny V. Do it. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of good stuff in the King Pizza shop to check out. A lot of yeah, shit. and they, they might give you a twofer. Ooh, they, I don't know if they'll give you a twofer. No, we'll give you a twofer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not talking about two for one. Yeah. <laughs> and where can people find you? Follow you? See your upcoming shows? Get um, more tips on how to tour somewhere colleges. Best, right? Yeah, you could. Our, our website has links to everything. Sunvoyagerband.com, and all all of our shows are usually listed there. Perfect. We, we got a lot of really cool merch we're going to be rolling out at the record release some limited edition stuff and then just a bunch of other we have dugouts really cool stuff that so. you can smoke with yeah. one hitter one hitters come with them um, might, might come with some 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 real dirty swag weed too we, yeah we might we, we, on your luck, hey, you know what I mean? we might pack hey, them you won't know until you go yeah exactly yes <laughs> well we want to thank uh andrew friedman uh please make sure to go pick up a copy of chefs drugs and rock and roll Sun Voyager, thank you for coming by. We really appreciate it. What's the name of the last song you're going to play for us? It's called Open Road. Open Road. Tune in next week for our 350th episode. It will be the live Snacky Tunes event we did out in L.A. You get to hear Naya, Wexler's Deli. And thanks for tuning in. Take us away. Thanks for having us.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.